Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, Specialist Digital Editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. Finishing up a week where the United States announced its national security strategy and named its two biggest threats as climate change and China. And starting a weekend where China begins its 20th National Party Congress, where the expectations are that Xi Jinping will be formally given an historic third term as president and elevated to a status equal to that of Mao Zedong. But there's been a fair bit of news in between. The United Nations General Assembly overwhelmingly voted to condemn Russia's attempted annexation of parts of Ukraine. 141 nations voted in favour of the motion. Only Russia, Syria, North Korea, Nicaragua and Belarus voted against it. And China, India and a number of African nations abstained. Meanwhile, on China's state TV, the number of Chinese troops stationed on contested islands in the South China Sea might have been given away when a story on the visit of a hospital ship announced it had provided medical services to more than 5,000 people. This in a fortnight where another massive military exercise was held by the US in the region. This one involving Filipino, Japanese and South Korean military being held on two islands facing two very contentious neighbours nearby that being Taiwan to the north and the Spratly Islands to the west. Today, you're going to be hearing from a veteran geopolitics commentator whose latest piece is titled, Is the Philippines Doomed to be Dragged into a US-China Conflict over Taiwan? But first, we're going to head to our North American Bureau once again to get a handle on the Biden administration's security strategy. Announced finally after two years in government, and you're going to hear why Russia gets mentioned, but not in the same way as China does. And we're going back to New York to hear more from our Deputy Bureau Chief Mark Manier. Last week he left us with a preview of possible new technology sanctions from the US on China. It turns out these sanctions start seven days from now and they're much, much more wide-reaching than anyone expected. In fact, they're going global. Let's get to it. Well, two years after his inauguration as president, Joe Biden and his administration unveiled the U.S. national security strategy this week. And to no one's surprise, much of the focus of this strategy was upon China. My colleague, Kinling Lo, is in our Washington, D.C. bureau and has been reporting on this. It's good morning here at late in the evening there. Hello, Kinling. Good to talk to you, Jared. Kinling, can you give us an overview of the basic threats or challenges announced by Jake Sullivan in the launch of this strategy? Sure. I think in the long-awaited strategy, a key term that defined the U.S. latest definition on China was calling them the most consequential geopolitical challenge that America faces in what they are defining as a very decisive decade. 
when Sullivan was officially delivering his speech in Georgetown University, where I attended when when he was speaking, a really eye-catching phrase that caught my attention was when he said, the U.S. thinks a post-Cold War era is gone. And this is an era where major powers will be challenged to define international order. And clearly, the only power that could actually challenge international order was China. And China was labeled as top priority for foreign policy. Of course, Russia is also mentioned. So their priority uh, says in the document is outcompeting China and containing Russia. Kinling, I've just got to recap that. Sounds very interesting because, you know, for people who remember the 20th century, it was the US and the then USSR, Russia, as superpowers. It's kind of like Jack Sullivan's demoted Russia uh, and, and sort of elevated China uh, as the major superpower uh, in the world alongside the US. But can I just check with you that with all we've seen out of Ukraine, the the repeated horrors, the evidence of war crimes, and of course the threat of nuclear weapons being used by Russia, was there much focus on Russia in this document? If we count the times that Russia and China words that appeared in the document. Actually, Russia appeared more than China. The word Russia appeared around 70 times, like more than 70 times. And China uh, China or PRC was mentioned around 50 times. From reading the document, it was quite obvious that China was the center rather than Russia, even with the ongoing war in Ukraine. And, you know, obviously, oil prices, oil supply is a huge problem in the whole world. And especially when Biden is facing a midterm election, it's it's a serious matter here. But Sullivan has made it very clear in his call with reporters um, that was conducted before he released the document that Ukraine essentially did not change Biden administration's foreign policy basics, um, the direction of it. So it's getting clearer that even with all these ongoing or let's say more immediate tensions with Russia, it's still PRC is the actual focus. I think it's absolutely clear because in the document, it was said, quote unquote, the PRC is the only competitor with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military, and technological power to advance that objective, end of quote. It is not the first time that this statement was made by the Biden administration, but putting it down in the national security strategy really explains the rationale behind all the moves that the U.S. is currently making on China, which China is, of course, very unhappy about. Well, yes, indeed, and I'll be speaking to our colleague Mark Magnier in New York about the new escalation in technology sanctions from the Biden administration. But let's get back to some of the language uh, used in this. Now, we hear a number of phrases from Beijing, from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, like Cold War mentality, that get used repeatedly whenever responding to any kind of statement from the US. But it's the use of the phrase win-win cooperation that seemed particularly apt for the US and China agreeing to work together 
to address the planet's climate crisis. And that was a source of optimism up until China withdrawing its cooperation following Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Was there any reference made to reconnecting with China on this existential threat of climate change? Yeah, I think you're right on point, Jared. In the national security strategy, the U.S. actually identified another major challenge that the U.S. and the world is facing other than the major power competition that we just talked about. I mean, climate change was really highlighted as a transnational challenge um, to all, not just the U.S. And in that regard, Beijing and Washington, despite past years of a downward spiraling of relations. It is something that at least both sides can come to a consensus that it is an important issue. Even before China said they're canceling the bilateral climate change talks with the U.S. following um, the Pelosi visit, the talks weren't really going anywhere. It wasn't really building anything very substantial. And when the U.S. says officially in a document that is more than just competition, they, they also mentioned to invest and to align I mean, I'm not sure China can see those two happening other than the approach to compete, mainly because obviously these transnational challenges are really politicized in the current atmosphere. You know, this really reminds me um, of a conversation I had with an energy expert in one of the Beijing universities when I was there earlier this year. At that time, the climate talks mechanism was still ongoing. Um, The two sides had visits and I guess they're trying to figure something out. And I was asking this professor whether or not he thought climate was really something that the two countries could work on. And his answer was, you know, ultimately, climate would be related to tech because if you talk about climate, it involves ways of solving climate change, right? When you drill down to it, it involves technology transfers and the trade of, you know, things like solar panel. And, you know, with all these talks now, if we want anything very meaningful done, it is going to be practical. It's going to be about real business, real information exchange. Are the two sides ready to do this? I mean, I guess that's what was the choking point. Now, killing US President Joe Biden had always signified his intent to reverse the isolationist approach, the unilateral approach of Donald Trump, and reinvigorate the alliances with other nations. In this document, there's mention of Europe, NATO, the G7, and the Indo-Pacific. It seems like Two years is a long time to wait for this kind of strategy to state those goals. Two years is quite a long time. Uh, Biden has faced a lot of criticisms of not pushing this out earlier. And there were actually a lot of expectations that it would come out earlier in spring this year. And when Sullivan introduced the document, he actually said they did not at that time because Russia was only starting the war with Ukraine by the end of February. And Sullivan was saying at that time, the direction of the war was not clear yet. And he was saying, frankly, many people have expected it to have ended earlier. So that kind of explains their reason for the the wait. But at the same time, when we talk to experts, some of them think it's pretty smart for them to release it now because two years into the administration, Biden's approach towards what he said when he campaigned, how the U.S. will be back again with all 
their allies and like-minded partners. I mean, they have really made a lot of moves um, since coming into the office. NATO, G7, Accord with Japan, India and Australia, and the AUKUS nuclear submarine agreement with the UK and Australia. These are all significant groupings that have connected with the U.S. and they're very much U.S. initiated and driven. Sullivan was boasting how G7 was revived, you know, as a multilateral group. Well, Kenling, I guess the other next big thing to come from the Biden administration is this huge raft of legislation called the Taiwan Policy Act. Now, it feels like months ago, I spoke with our colleague Jacob Frome about just how far that policy will go. Uh, And that seems to be like the next big flashpoint in uh, US-China relations. Is there any sense that this will come before the Congress, before these midterm elections? No, we're not really expecting that um, to happen before the midterms. Honestly, now um, everybody is like busy campaigning. We expect this to come after. But when it does get on the agenda again, I believe there will be a lot of news from both the U.S. side and the China side about this. Yes, indeed, Kinling. It's great to talk to you again, and we will be following you and our North American Bureau in these weeks to come. There'll be a lot to talk about and a lot to read about. Kinling Lowe, once again, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure. Mark Manier is our Deputy North American Bureau Chief based in New York, and last week gave us a preview a premonition, if you will, about a substantial raft of new sanctions from the Biden administration targeting China's access to semiconductors. But I've got him back on the line this week because what was announced is being seen as one of the most aggressive acts since the US first moved to ban Huawei in 2019. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Jared. So let's start with these new tech sanctions. Your report on SCMP.com states that seven days from now, there will be 31 Chinese companies, research institutions and related groups being hit with restrictions on obtaining core US technologies. What exactly does core technologies cover? So uh, what what the US essentially has done, they dropped the first salvo back in uh, August, September when they uh, announced a ban on NVIDIA and AMD. And this was seen as it got a lot of criticism. It was seen as kind of uh, a half measure and was not very consistent. Now what we're seeing with the uh, release of not only the national strategy, but also uh, you put that together with the Chips and Science Act and the list uh, list and other um, actions that were announced last Friday, you start to have a very broad-based and uh, much more um, deep uh, policy that is starting to emerge. So essentially what the U.S. is doing is, I, I believe they know that probably time is limited in terms of the rising Chinese capability. And so they are looking at the choke points that they still have, the leverage that they still have over China, the areas where U.S. uh, and to some extent Western allies technology is still 
ahead of the Chinese and where they need this. So in particular, these are in the areas of uh, AI chip design, um, design automation software, chip manufacturing equipment, and equipment components. And so many of the restrictions are aimed at these four quote-unquote choke points. Now, we've heard on other SEMP podcasts, our Inside China podcast, from our tech reporter, Shepan, who explained that the machines to make semiconductors come from a Dutch company, but the software to get these things done is normally written by American companies. So that's clearly one of those choke points. I just want to play you just a sample of a quote of a piece written by John Bateman from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Foreign Policy magazine, where he says this latest move by the Biden administration reveals a single-minded focus on thwarting Chinese capabilities at a broad and fundamental level. Although framed as a national security measure, the primary damage to China will be economic on a scale well out of proportion to the cited military and intelligence concerns. Mark, what are you hearing about the goal of this US policy or these US sanctions? Is it, as John Bateman says, a direct attempt to hit China's economic and technological development? Jared, I think it's a bit of all of the above. Essentially, uh, things have gotten so complicated and interrelated in terms of the relationship between the U.S. and China. You know, there's a lot of times this term about a new Cold War is bandied about. But if you think about the economic integration, the dual use of technologies now, how complicated this world and this relationship is. I think from what I understand, the language that was issued in the strictures uh, on Friday uh, are careful not to ostensibly mention the competitive element. Um, a lot of this is on the surface directed at the military uh, capabilities, uh, the ability of China to make very, very high-end chips and AI, you know, think killer robots that we're moving toward on the battlefield. Um, this is extremely, extremely uh, complicated and uh, has enormous implications. So this is what they are afraid of. What you're seeing, though, now is that because of the nature, the integrated nature of technology, you can no longer do what they were doing uh, during the Cold War um, and ring fence a few technologies like satellites and nuclear weapons that um, are considered the most dangerous and difficult to counter. Now what you have to do is back that out several layers to the components and the capabilities. And this, of course, gets you very, very deep into a lot of the consumer world and the dual use. So I think they're trying to sort of do both of those. Now, the complexity here is that, of course, you are hurting your own companies to some extent and those of your allies. So what they're trying to do, and I hear, you know, for the good old U.S. government that this is actually a fairly well thought out policy and that it looks like they really were able to tap some of the tech expertise trying to deal with a very complicated industry and, and structure. And so what they're trying to do is they realize that 
ultimately national security also depends on R&D and innovation in American private companies. And that the money from that comes from sales, much of which go to China. So what they appear to be doing is drawing a, a line about where the 14 nanometer chips are. And the US companies uh, will be free to sell those to China, which gives them some of the revenue to remain competitive. And chips that are smaller than that, and therefore at the very cutting edge, are those that they will work harder to protect. Mark, has there been any response from the Chinese embassy in Washington or indeed from Beijing's Ministry of Foreign Affairs? Well, that is very interesting. If if you remember when Huawei was put on the entity list several years ago, the response was fast and furious on the part of the Chinese. And ultimately, we saw uh, the drama with Meng Wanzhou, chief financial officer who was held in Vancouver, and the Chinese made it eminently clear that they were uh, extremely angry. The first reaction from China has been quite muted by Chinese standards. They talked about the U.S. trying to enforce its tech hegemony um, and this sort of thing. I suspect a couple of things. One, they this hit them pretty hard. They have to assess what the damage is and how they're going to do it. Uh, I think there are you know, several moves they could bring about that they're potentially contemplating here. It's quite interesting. We're, of course, standing on the verge of the 20th Party Congress. can only imagine what kind of fuel for discussion uh, this would give that meeting. And, and on that, without wanting to get you to speculate, but is there any suggestion from who you've been speaking to about how China could counter this move or how China could counter these raft of sanctions with sanctions of its own. You're absolutely right about the 20th Party Congress. This is uh, a, a bit of a slap in the face, uh, hitting a, a very, very core part of Xi Jinping's plans, uh, part of the made in China 2025 roadmap, part of the plan to dominate uh, the chip industry by 2049, the centennial of modern China. Uh, I think that by every indication, that's just American bureaucracy's sort of pace uh, without too much you know, assessment of, of the Chinese political calendar, but it's, it's not going to be come down well. Uh, so beyond that, there are there's a lot of people looking at what China can be expected to do, what they might do, what is possibly done. Uh, I suspect China has not even decided. So this is in the realm of speculation, but that's what planners do. So there are a number of things that they they could do. They are developing their own version of an entity list. And so a very quick one would be to slap a bunch of U.S. companies with similar treatment. They also have developed uh, a legal framework where any company that follows, uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but something like unauthorized foreign laws is subject to sanction. So they could do that against third-party countries. Uh, I might mention that a very uh, in terms of the reach of these lists that came out on Friday and, and the other measures, one of the particularly aggressive things about them is that they extend the reach 
extraterritorially, that foreign companies who use any sort of technology um, are also subject to U.S. restrictions. So it's attempting to be a very broad thing. Okay, uh, so that particular measure might be used against foreign companies from smaller nations that uh, are in a bind about complying with U.S. rules. Okay, so those are a couple of things. Another one they could do is ramp up poaching of foreign talent in order through their thousand talents programs and others to try to jumpstart the capability for their indigenous chip attempts and goals. And then, you know, probably the one of the toughest ones would be to put export restrictions on things like lithium, where they hold a very, very strong hand in terms of uh, global processing. And this would also be directed directly at Biden's agenda because he has made electronic vehicles and other technologies a cornerstone of his efforts to address climate change. Mark, we quite often hear the US talk about, you know, the rules-based order, you know, the idea of nations all agreeing on how to behave. It's all very nice for the Biden administration to enact new laws restricting American citizens and American companies from doing business with China. But what of the South Korean and Taiwanese companies, the European companies? Has there been any consultation about this? Is this really going to be the US telling the rest of the world not to do business with China? A very, very important question and a very interesting dynamic. And we've only been able really to see what's on the stage, uh, not what is going on behind the curtain. But a couple of things I think that we can see. One, they gave a very short period of time for these restrictions to go into place. The reason for that is, it seems, is to prevent China from stockpiling a load of chips that they need strategically to make it happen immediately. And they have also bypassed the U.S. requirement for industry comment uh, on the grounds that this is more of an emergency, which again would have delayed it and given lots of warning. Okay, so that's one thing. The other thing that we see is that this is very unilateral, that these announcements were made. If you look at them, yes, they uh, include this component of anybody using American technology or components overseas is subject to these rules as well. But what you want with, with any sort of sanction effort as we've seen with Russia and following its invasion of Ukraine, is a broad-based effort. It, they're always more effective. And uh, this did not happen. It's, it's unilateral. Now, there's always the chance that uh, others will come forward and work with the U.S. There's chatter that they're already talking to the EU-US Trade and Technology Council to try to get something working. The short answer is they have almost certainly, I mean, absolutely certainly been in touch with all their allies, hoping that they will get on board. But there are differences here. Uh, a lot of other countries do not want to hamstring their national champion tech companies. These countries often have much smaller markets than the US, and so they don't have the potential for diversification that US companies have. So I think these things are going to be a factor. One other thing on that count that I might mention, these restrictions will not touch 
non-US, non-Chinese, i.e. foreign countries that have their own indigenous technology that are not dependent on the US. So I think you will see short term and medium term, this will restrict uh, China and cobble them and make it more difficult. Longer term, the history of sanctions tends to show that um, there will be parallel uh, distribution chains that develop um, that China may well have access to with other countries' indigenous technology that the U.S. does not control. So it is very much in the U.S. interest to get foreign capitals, foreign allies to buy into its strategy, which I'm sure it will be working on very, very aggressively in the next many months to try to uh, prevent too much of that from happening. There's much more to come on this. And as you say, we'll be looking forward to seeing what Xi Jinping and his newly appointed senior ministers come up with after the 20th Party Congress. Mark Manier in New York Thank you, as always, and we'll read your ongoing reports and analysis at scmp.com. Thanks very much for having me, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. While global media attention is focused on new sanctions from Washington, the coming party congress in Beijing, and the ongoing horrors of the Ukraine war, down at the southeast end of the South China Sea, we're seeing the end of a massive military exercise involving not just American and Filipino forces, but for the first time, South Korean and Japanese soldiers as well. These exercises are occurring on islands directly facing two of the most contentious areas of geopolitics on this side of the world, Taiwan and the small islands in the South China Sea. That's why we're welcoming back Lucio Blanco Pitlow III, Research Fellow at the Asia-Pacific Pathways to Progress Foundation, Fellow at the University of the Philippines Korea Research Center, and regular contributor of analysis and opinion to the South China Morning Post. Lucio, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jared. Uh, Always a pleasure to be here. Good morning. Good morning, indeed. Now, before we get to the meat of the columns you've published on scmp.com, I think it's probably worthwhile catching our listeners up on the foreign policy changes for the Philippines that have occurred under its new president, Bongbong Marcos. Now, under Duterte, we witnessed, if not a pivot away from the US towards China, let's just say a bit more of a contentious throwing everything up in the air uh, in terms of relationships. How has Bongbong Marcos steered the nation's foreign relations with these two superpowers since he's swearing in to the end of June? Well, we, we see an effort on, on the part uh, early in the administration of uh, the new uh, President uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. to, uh, in a way, uh, continue the, uh, the program of diversifying the country's uh, economic relations. You know, he had, re- he had been repeating the line of being a friend to all and enemy to none. So the relations with the U.S. are very important uh, partner which uh, had been challenged uh, in the previous years under the previous government because, you know, largely on account of human rights issues in relation to the uh, flagship, the drug war of the Duterte government. So uh, Marcos government is trying to put that aside and, you know, to recover lost ground uh, in terms uh, of uh, engagement with the 
U.S. Uh, and at the same time, of course, expand you know the the economic dimension of the relations. He uh, attended the U.N. General Assembly uh, meeting, spoke before there, had a bilateral meeting with uh, President Biden, um, and uh, of course uh, made a pitch you know, before the New York Stock Exchange. Met American investors and businessmen, encouraged them to bring in capital to the Philippines to help the country recover from the economic slump in the last two and a half years. And of course, you know, weathering the coming inflation, high energy, and food prices, you know, he is uh, concurrently heading the Department of Agriculture. So food security is high in his agenda. So the domestic focus is very important. And to have as many partners, you know, to, to help address this domestic push from energy to food uh, would really help. And of course, the security dimension, very important, you know, because of the increasing tensions uh, just due north of the Philippines in the Taiwan Strait. And of course, the uh, tensions also in the South China Sea. So having partners to uh, be, be able to respond, you know, to emergencies that may arise from these flashpoints very crucial, you know, to responding to regional challenges and working with uh, allies and partners and friends to uh, to be able to mitigate, you know, uh, potential uh, challenges, you know, on its uh, maritime interests, you know, especially on the South China Sea front, you know, is, is uh, very important. So I think this is where relations with the U.S. and with the allies will really play a vital role. Now, we could do a whole podcast on the complexities of the exclusive economic zone for the Philippines and the deposits of natural gas and oil that are either running out or yet to be exploited. But let me just turn back to these come and dug military exercises, which have been going on for a fortnight and end today as we speak. One half of these exercises are occurring on the island of Luzon, which faces north towards Taiwan. And the other is on the island of Palawan, which faces the west towards the Spratly Islands, where China has spent a lot of time and energy developing military infrastructure. Lucio, am I inferring too much from the location of these exercises? It seems quite pointed what they're practicing to do. Well, yes, I, I do think that these uh, two areas will be uh, most likely uh, staging grounds uh, you know, for exercises uh, of an increasing scale and increasing tempo as well. We have seen this uh, also early this year, you know, last uh, April, during the Balikatan exercises between the Philippines and the U.S. So Cagayan province, which directly faces uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, this is the northernmost uh, province uh, of the Philippines on, on the main island of Luzon. You know? And uh, of course, this is, uh, of course, staring at uh, Taiwan Strait. And then as, as you mentioned, Palawan, you know, uh, both the Kamandag and the previous Balikatan exercises, Palawan, which uh, faces the uh, uh, West Philippine Sea or the South China Sea, is also a location for joint exercises between the Philippines and the U.S. And also uh, increasingly um, partners, uh, you know, coming in as observers like uh, contingent from Australia. And of course, in these uh, recent Kamandag exercises, you have Japanese and South Korean, you know, taking part also in the exercises. So th these two areas will become likely, you know, going forward, they will be hosting more of these exercises. And you wrote of your concerns about the Philippines 
been drawn into a potential confrontation with Beijing over Taiwan, given both its strategic position and its history uh, with the US. Can you spell out your concerns for us? Well, yes. So, of course, uh, the Philippines uh, is being put in a diff- difficult spot, you know, to say the least. U.S. is our main treaty ally, long-standing security treaty ally, very important uh, economic partner and also investor. Uh, but at the same time, of course, across the sea, you know, we have a big neighbor. China is our largest trade partner. Also, uh, I think our second largest investor and fast-rising infrastructure builder. So the, the economic ties that link us with, with uh, mainland is uh, very crucial for our economy. And uh, we recognize that we have disputes with China, especially on the South China Sea. But uh, we also uh, need to factor in you know, potential Chinese reaction uh, in our uh, alliance activities and engagement with the U.S. We do know that you know, U.S. and China's Relations uh, over the past few years, you know, increasingly becoming more acrimonious. So there's a tendency uh, for the two, you know, their rivalry to spill over on flashpoints like Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. And because of our location, proximity to the Taiwan Strait and being a claimant on the South China Sea, and also because of the longstanding our alliance with the U.S. and the existing access of U.S. troops you know, to in the Philippines through the 2014 EDCA and, of course, the bedrock, you know, the Mutual Defense Treaty of 1951. So there are worries that the Philippines may be used as potential staging grounds for U.S. to respond to uh, potential contingencies in the Taiwan Strait. So I do think that uh, China understands, you know, the the long-standing uh, agreement between the Philippines and the U.S. on the security front. So the troops, the increased uh, number of troops and uh, arms, prepositioning of arms, would be watched keenly by Beijing. What I think is the more contentious point would be potential deployment of missiles, you know, whether short-range or medium-range missiles that can possibly hit targets in the South China Sea or you know, even in the mainland. And this will really put the Philippines in the crosshairs. And of course, this echoes what happened to South Korea in 2017, you know, when South Korea allowed the hosting of TAD missiles in its soil, which uh, of course, China, its largest trade partner, objected to. And we know what happened. Punitive economic measures were levied by China to South Korea that affected South Korea China relations, but also, of course, the South Korean economy. And that that is one thing that we're trying to avoid. And uh, we will see in the next developments whether we will have greater success and if we can learn a page or two, you know, from South Korea's experience. You're exactly right, Lucio. There was the deployment of Patriot missiles uh, earlier this year, and that was briefly during those exercises. But this suggestion that there will be these medium-range ballistic missiles installed in the Philippines, I can only imagine what kind of diplomatic pushback that will get. Now, you've previously detailed how both China and the US were very keen to show the new Marcos government their enthusiasm to assist the Philippines. On the one hand, there's China offering to fund massive infrastructure projects, including, of course, a massive railway project like it's done in so many other nations in Southeast Asia. And on the other hand, 
The US is wanting to invest in big defense manufacturing and the biggest public-private partnership in the Philippines' history at the former Subic Bay base. All of this is trying to continue to develop its infrastructure on the islands west of the Philippines. The continued confrontations with Chinese fishing fleets. How does Ferdinand Marcos Jr. going to navigate this? Well, these are really very difficult uh, times. You know, uh, I wonder if he's still able to have a comfortable sleep. You know, at night. You know, especially as the tensions between the two great powers, which are very important. You know, both of them are important partners for the Philippines. You know, uh, as they continue to intensify our room for maneuver shrinks. And so what I think uh, President Marcos will do is to try to double down investing in ASEAN, you know, working with uh, fellow countries in ASEAN. And I think his first overseas trips to Indonesia and Singapore really is, uh, signifies one important direction of his foreign policy, which is to work with uh, closer neighbors, partners, and fellow members in the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to try to reach you know, uh, some kind of uh, consensus or position and then uh, encourage you know, uh, competing great powers to pursue dialogue and you know, to really uh, avoid you know, potential accidents, you know, potential miscalculation that can plunge the entire region, uh, undermine regional security and stability. So, you know, this November in Nopen, there will be a leader summit. I think uh, that will be a venue, you know, for, for President Marcos, President Dedisha, Jokowi, as well as other leaders in ASEAN you know, to uh, have this uh, conversation going to implore on the great powers, you know, the severe adverse consequences that may befall, especially the region, if it becomes a battleground for armed confrontation between great powers. Well, indeed, there seems to be a lot of expectation leading up to this meeting in Bali in November for the G20. No doubt there'd be much more to talk about on that along the way. Uh, Lucio Blanco Pitlow III, thank you very much. We will look for your continued analysis and opinion pieces on sap.com. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Always a pleasure. That's all for this week's episode of China Geopolitics. Don't forget our sister podcast, Inside China, has a brand new episode out this week, and you can probably guess what the subject is. It's all about the 20th Party Congress and what we can expect over the next seven days. It's presented by the fabulous Mimi Lau, with analysis from veteran China diplomacy experts William Zhang and our man in Beijing, Mai Jun. Don't forget, we've got extensive multimedia and infographic specials helping to decode and demystify this event in Beijing on our website at scmp.com. There's a lot more going on than just Xi Jinping getting the job for another term. Do have a listen to the latest Inside China episode and check out our website for more. Now, before we go, I did have a quick look at the On This Day list for October 14 and noticed on this day 60 years ago, an American reconnaissance plane took photographs of Soviet ballistic missiles being installed in Cuba, kicking off what became known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. Of course, this anniversary comes just two days after North Korea's state media announced it had tested two long-range tactical cruise missiles and that nuclear-armed versions of these had already been deployed. One wonders if we can't all pitch in and get Kim Jong-un a different hobby, or at least ask him who cleans up after all these missiles sink into the Sea of Japan. 
Keep in touch with us on Twitter at SMP News. I'm at J underscore Watt. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.